Welcome to another episode of Vet Nerds, a podcast made by a veterinary student for veterinary students, especially the nerdy ones who love practice clinical reasoning with cases. I'm your host Ariel Lee, a third-year vet student from UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine and a huge nerd. Join me in a case recap on an epileptic cat with problems with its medication, followed by an expert interview on workup and management of epilepsy cats. Whether you are studying for exams, seeking opportunities to hone your clinical skills, or simply thirsty for some weird cases, you'll find something of interest in the next 20 minutes. Let's dive into the case now. A two-year-old male neutered domestic shorthair presented for internal medicine consult for diffuse lymphadenopathy. The cat was adopted as a stray kitten. He was FIV FELV negative at time of adoption. Two months prior to presentation, he started to have cluster seizures, was worked up by a neurologist, and tentatively diagnosed with idiopathic epilepsy. MRI was not pursued at this time. He was started on Keppra 50 mg per kg POQ8 hours, which was adjusted to 100 mg per kg POQ8 hours due to lack of seizure control. But his seizures were still poorly controlled. Therefore, phenobarbital 3 mg per kg POQ12 hours was added a month ago, and he had no seizures since. Owner noticed facial swelling that turned out to be prominent mandibular lymph nodes. On physical examination, his superficial cervical and popliteal lymph nodes were also markedly enlarged and firm. His physical and neurologic exam, otherwise, was unremarkable. Owner reported that he behaved normally at home, eating and drinking just well. CBC and chemistry with electrolytes were performed. He had a mild regenerative anemia with hematocrit of 24.8%, reference range between 30 to 50%. Normal leukogram and platelet counts. He had a mild hyperproteinemia at 5.5 gram per deciliter, reference range 6.6 to 8.4, with 2.9 gram per deciliter albumin and 2.6 gram per deciliter globulin. MRI and CSF revealed no abnormalities, which was supportive of the previous diagnosis of idiopathic epilepsy. Aspiration of the left superficial cervical lymph node revealed well-differentiated small and intermediate-sized lymphocytes. Granular lymphocytes, reactive lymphocytes, and plasma cells were mildly increased in number. A few MOT cells were also noted. There was no evidence of neoplasia in the specimen, and this was read as reactive lymphoid hyperplasia. The lymphadenopathy was most likely an adverse reaction to phenobarbital. Other potential causes include infectious, autoimmune disorders, or less likely neoplasia. Phenobarbital is known to cause enlarged lymph nodes in cats as an adverse reaction, a phenomenon also known as pseudolymphoma. As this patient was clinically doing well and had satisfying seizure control on phenobarbital, neurology service recommended keeping the current antileptic regime and starting a tapering dose of prednisolone, with the plan to recheck in two weeks. He responded well, and his lymphadenopathy was still present but much improved on recheck exam. He remained clinically well and in good seizure control. 
Subsequently, his capra was discontinued. His phenobarbital dose was increased to four milligram per kilogram POQ twelve hours after a breakthrough seizure. On his two-month recheck of lymphadenopathy, he continued to do well clinically, and his lymph nodes further improved. However, on recheck CBC, a marked neutropenia was found. At 139 neutrophils per microliter, reference range 2,000 to 9,000, and he had a moderate thrombocytopenia at 75,000 per microliter, reference range 180,000 to 500,000. Neutropenia and thrombocytopenia are another side effect of phenobarbital we sometimes see in cats. Due to the severity of neutropenia, phenobarbital was tapered off over one week. And zonisamide, four milligram per kilogram POQ twelve hours, was started for seizure control. Prophylactic clavamox was initiated until his neutrophils rose back to over fifteen hundred per microliter. Fortunately, his neutropenia and thrombocytopenia resolved with phenobarbital tapered off, and to date, his seizure has been well managed on zonisamide as the sole agent, and capra added for pulse therapy for breakthrough seizures. Phenobarbital is currently the first choice for treatment of seizures in cats. Side effects in cats are normally mild, including ataxia, sedation, polyphagia, polydipsia, and polyuria. However, cytopenia, including thrombocytopenia and leukopenia, as well as immune-mediated hypersensitivity reactions, are reported to occasionally occur. Pseudolymphoma is thought to be one of the immune-mediated hypersensitivities associated with phenobarbital, though pathogenesis of this phenomenon is not entirely clear. Pseudolymphoma is a benign lymphoproliferative disorder with various causes showing clinical features that resemble malignant lymphoma. In humans, aromatic anti-epileptic drugs such as carbamazepine, phenytoin, phenobarbital, and valproic acid are reported to cause a delayed adverse drug reaction that mainly manifests as skin lesions. Though concurrent lymphadenopathy occurs in about 63% of patients, in cats, pseudolymphoma or reactive lymphoid hyperplasia of the peripheral lymph nodes has been reported to occur in response to certain drugs like propothiouracil, methamazole, and, as in our case, phenobarbital. Today's expert guest is Dr. Karen Verneau. She is a professor in neurology and neurosurgery department of UC Davis Veterinary School. She is specifically interested in inherited neurological disease, inflammatory and metabolic disease, and finding better ways to treat them. She is also interested in pediatric medicine, particularly focused on kittens. Let's talk about cats. We know you love them. So when we are presented with a cat with seizure-like activities, does the workup differ from that of a dog with seizures? Are there any caveats, tips, or tricks that you want to share with us? Um, I like I don't think so. I mean, the only thing different would be kittens. Obviously, when we're dealing with pediatrics, we have to think about you know other metabolic things like hypoglycemia or liver shunts or. Rare things like inborn errors of metabolism. So, but a, you know, a mature cat, 
you know, we're thinking about the same types of diseases as dogs. I mean, for a long time, we thought that cats didn't get epilepsy, but now we know that's not true. They do, but we're looking for the same sorts of things, you know, metabolic disease, you know, toxicity is possible, although cats aren't as, cats are probably more intelligent than dogs. And then intracranial things, progressive or non-progressive. I mean, there's some differences, dogs, um, unlike dogs, cats don't get inflammatory brain disease. They're much more likely to have something infectious and they get horrible viral diseases, you know, FVLV and the worst of all is FIP. So, so different species, so, but similar workup. Okay. So if we can rule out those extracranial causes of seizure, for example, if we see a dog with the signalman of a young dog with a history that conforms with idiopathic epilepsy, we most likely won't go for MRI and CSF before we treat them empirically would you do that the same thing with cats or do you always want to rule out structural causes if they're not kittens i mean i think you know as is true in a lot of different areas we know a lot more about dogs than we do about cats and here at uc davis cats are not a big part of our caseload and even less so in neurology i think um, dr reagan's amazing fip trial has kind of shifted things a little bit um, more towards cats this year, but still we don't see a lot of cats. So I think a little bit of it depends on this, you know, if we're talking about dogs first as kind of the, you know, what we know the most, the, the baseline signal, you know, if it's a golden retriever and it's two years old and it has generalized seizures and it's got an unremarkable history and a normal minimum database and a normal neuro exam, you know, we may not recommend an intracranial workup at the beginning. I think, you know, the general practitioner um, or first opinion practice, it's good to talk to people about that because we, we could be wrong. We've seen six-month-old golden retrievers with a neoplasm, so they don't always fit what they're supposed to do in a young dog. But I think with all of that, we're probably not going to go forward with an intracranial workup, you know, if it's an owner who's like, I just have to know. I have to know that there's nothing else to worry about it then I think it's reasonable to do it, provided they understand that we're not expecting to see, you know, a, an abnormality, the cost and the risk. I mean, there's a risk of doing anything, even a blood draw or cystocentesis. Here we're talking about a general anesthetic, an MRI, and then potentially a spinal tap. So I think it's just, it's a good conversation to have with an owner right at the beginning. So they kind of know, you know, what are some options in front of us, but you're right. You know, if the signalment fits, and everything else fits, we're probably not going to recommend an intracranial workup at that moment. With a cat, you know, it depends a little bit, um, you know, on the, on the history. I think it's similar if it's been having, you know, if it's normal, otherwise, you know, indoor cat, normal exam, and it's been having generalized seizures, you know, we may wait a little bit, although we, we, as a group tend to worry more about sinister things in cats. So it's going to depend a little bit about, you know, the exam and, you know, the other difficult thing in cats is cats in a vet's office. Sometimes they don't, you know, we can't get as perfect an exam or a neurologic exam as we might in a dog. And some cats need to be medicated to come into the vet's office. They might have some gabapentin on board, which may alter the exam. So I think it's a little, it's just a little different in cats, but I think all things considered, it's, it's going to be a similar recommendation. I think we just are maybe more skewed towards progressive disease in cats with epilepsy, something that we, um, you know, we kind of back into 
Yeah, sounds great. The next question is about anti-epileptic medication for cats. So mm -hmm. the cat in our case had pseudolymphoma and cytokinia um, at different time point with phenobarbital administration. So do these rare side effects uh, prompt a different rechecking regime for cats compared to our rechecking protocols for dogs? Yeah, um, I hate that term pseudolymphoma because it's not lymphoma. So we should just say it's react. It's something else. Um, you know, that's something that's more specific to cats. I think phenobarbital in general is a really good anticonvulsant in cats, but yeah, they can have, you know, they can have idiosyncratic reactions just like dogs and they can have reactive lymphadenopathy related to it. You know, we can't give potassium bromide in cats because they get fatal asthma. So we're sort of different, but cats seem to tolerate you know, phenobarbs are a first line drug. They tend to tolerate that well. They tolerate levetiracetam or Keppra. Well, when I was a resident, people used oral diazepam, which worked really well. But then there was a publication about fatal hepatic necrosis in cats, which scared everybody. So we don't use that anymore. But, you know, that would potentially be another option, again, provided we're aware of it and our owners are aware of it. Yeah, so there are just some different options, you know, for cats. Yeah. How about zonisamide? Our cat didn't respond to Keppra well, so was put on zonisamide. Mm -hmm. It's not a drug I see a lot here in Davis. And what's what's going on with that? I mean, it's you know, it's not it's difficult, right? Because we don't have a million cats to do a clinical study on and say in cats with epilepsy, this is the best drug. Same thing with dogs. You know, a lot of the information that we have is anecdotal or based on experience. We have, you know, as a profession, we have a lot of experience in treating seizures, so much so. And phenobarb is such an old drug that you might know some of the old measurements are in grains, like a grain of phenobarb. How old is that? It's not, it's not even in milligrams. So, so I think that um, zinisamide is one of those that we, it's kind of a weird drug. It's a sulfonamide. So it's, it's associated with some, some problems related to sulfonamide. So we tend to think of it as a third or fourth line drug and we, we don't use it very often, but there are a lot of people who really like it, but it's just an opinion. It's like me, you know, arguing with my neighbor. I really like this color of blue. Well, I really like this color of blue. There's just not a lot of data and the data that's out there is case reports in, you know, 10 or 12 dogs. So it's not a triple mass placebo controlled trial that we can go to and get the information. So a lot of it is anecdotal and that makes it hard for us as veterinary practitioners to choose the right drug. I mean, I think we have for dogs, we have a lot of experience with potassium bromide and phenobarb and then levetiracetam is kind of a third line drug and zinesamide is lower than that. So we'll reach for it and use it, but it's, I never really expect it's going to be a magic but if you think about it and those patients that you're using it in, they've already failed the other drug. So it's not really a fair comparison. So it's just, it's just an opinion. I, I don't feel that zinesamide works that well, but that's an opinion based on no data <laughs> just because we don't <laughs> have it. <laughs> yeah. And it's worse in cats. We know even less about cats. So any current study going on that we can expect in the near future? about these drugs, clinical trials? Uh, not that I'm aware of. I'm, you know, that's, we really need something like that, but it's just be a huge, very expensive study, but it's, it's what really needs, we need a clinical trial to help us make these really 
informed clinical decisions, which drug is best? And I don't know. This, we have chosen bromide and bromide in dogs and phenobarbin in cats. It's phenobarb and Keppra as our, as our top choices. And that's kind of what we stick to. And they work pretty well most of the time. We still have resistant cats and resistant dogs for sure. Any additional comments on epileptic cat management, like the things we talk to owners? Are there any differences compared to our normal dog patients? I think that, you know, the field of feline neurology is uh, is an open one. And I think the thing about cats is we're just, we just don't have a lot of data or experience. So, you know, cats get some, I think cats are, you know, more likely to have an intracranial problem. So we just need to make sure that we're not missing something, particularly if they're not responding to, to appropriate anti-epileptic medication. We need to think, you know, maybe I'm missing something, but no, I think we just need more information about cats, you know, their diseases, how to manage them. And you know, they're just a different, <laughs> they're just a different species, right? Yes, they are. <laughs> so we just have to be creative, but I think more information, more data would help us make informed decisions. Thank you. This wraps up another episode of Vet Nurse. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this was helpful. If you like this episode, or if you have any questions or comments, please leave a message. See you next time.